Good morning, good morning. Thank you for continuing on with us on past worship. Uh, We're going to dive into God's Word together. So if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, go to the book of Jude. Go to the book of Jude. So um, if you go to Revelation and turn left, you'll find it right there. Go to the book of Jude. That's the series that we're starting today. We're walking through this short but powerful letter through the book of Jude. And if we had to have a, a title for this series, it would be simply this. The book of Jude is about getting into good trouble. Good trouble is a phrase that's been made popular by the Congressman John Lewis, the late Congressman John Lewis, who passed not too long ago. The first time he said that phrase was giving a speech atop the hopefully soon to be renamed Edmund Pettus Bridge, where he called his fellow citizens to get into good trouble. And again, in a Washington Post article that he wrote before he passed to be published on the day of his funeral, he wrote again a letter calling us to get into good trouble. And he meant by that that he and others were willing to fight over some things, that there were some things worth fighting for, and there were some things worth contending over. And this series through book of Jude is about getting into that same type of trouble, not just about civic issues, but contending for the faith itself. Now, the book of Jude has simply brought them to three distinct sections. Um, One is kind of the foundations, verses 1 through 4, which we're going to look at today. Verses 5 through 16 are going to give us the marks of a heretic. So how do we recognize those who are attacking the faith that we must defend against? And in the last verses, verses 17 through 25, the book of Jude is going to tell us how we are to contend for the faith. Now, we're not called just to contend for the faith, but the Word of God tells us how we should be fighting, how we should be contending. And so that's where we're going to end the series. So we're going to today lay down, hopefully, a foundation for where we're going. So read along silently as I read aloud verses 1 through 4 of the book of Jude. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James, to those who are the called loved by God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Dear friends, although I was eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was delivered to the saints once for all. For some people who were designated for this judgment long ago have come in by stealth, They are ungodly, turning the grace of our God into sensuality and denying Jesus Christ, our only master and Lord. Would you pray with me? Father, would you use my mind and my mouth in this moment to accomplish more than I am able to? Holy Spirit, you are free to do what only you can do. Convict our hearts, challenge our presuppositions and our biases, God, and change our hearts. God, would you do something in our lives and in our hearts today, God, that exceeds our expectations? We want to be conformed to your will for the glory of God and the good of the church. In the precious name of Jesus Christ, we pray. And all of God's people said, amen and amen. So we're going to talk about this foundation. Once again, the three distinct sections, verses 1 through 4, laying the foundations, verses 5 through 16, giving us the profile of a theological predator, if you will. And verses 17 through the end of the book calls us, tells us how we should be responding. So today we're going to lay down a foundation. And it's very important that we get the author's intent behind this book. 
The book of Jude has some of those from the most familiar passages in all of the Bible, and you hear it in just a second. But it's important for us to understand not just who is writing this, but why he is writing it. Let's start with the who, and the who is Jude. It says in the very first verse, the very beginning, it says, Jude, a servant of Jesus and a brother of James. Now, this may sound familiar as we walk through the book of Galatians and other epistles. We have seen that there's a very familiar greeting to the beginning of letters. And honestly, that's not, that shouldn't be strange to us because we do the same thing. I remember when we used to write letters. I don't know if people write letters anymore. If that's a thing, right? Now it's just emojis and text messages. But there was a time, believe it or not, where people actually wrote down letters on paper and sent it to people. And they would begin it the same way. Dear John, comma, space, indention. Some of you had to learn that and memorize that, the, the format for writing a letter. And in the Bible, we see a very familiar format in the Word of God that it usually starts with who's writing the book and why they're writing the book. So who they're writing, who's writing the book, why they're writing the book, and even who they're writing to. And so we find all those familiar elements in the book of Jude, but in the Christian faith, there is a term, I'm going to throw out some words for you here, called verbal plenary inspiration, which basically means that every single word of the Bible is inspired. There are no throwaway words, that every jot and tittle is from God for our good and for instructions in righteousness. And so the temptation is to rush past these verses and get to the meat. Some of you who may be familiar with the book of Jude know that there's going to be a command to contend for the faith, and that's what you're waiting on. You're ready for the command to let loose the dogs of war and fight the good fight of faith. But before we get there, let's see what the Word of God has to say to us even in the beginning. It says, Jude, a servant of Jesus and a brother of James. So who is Jude writing this book? He says that he's a servant of Jesus and a brother of James. Who are those people? But James here is actually talking about the half-brother of Jesus. And I say half-brother because although they had the same mother, we believe that God the Father was God, was Jesus' father. And so they were half-brothers. They were his natural brothers and sisters. Now, I don't know about you, but if I was writing a letter to somebody with some commands, I would probably name-drop Jesus if I'm going to name-drop anybody. If ever there was a time to say, hey, listen to what I have to say because of who I know, this would be the time the very natural brother of Jesus could have said that, but no, he said he was a servant of Jesus and a brother of James. He did not consider himself an equal to the Lord God. He did not appeal to that as an authoritative source. No, he called himself a servant. And we can't miss this. This tone of humility without jockeying for position or prominence is really at the very heart of this letter. This sets the tone for the entire letter. Let me prove it to you. Who's he writing to? to those who are the called, loved by God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. If I had the time, we would spend several weeks on each one of those words. What it means to be called by God, what it means to be loved by God, and what it means to be kept by God. So let me give you a quick introduction, because once again, these are not throwaway words. What does it mean when he says, the called? That is the, the foundation of what I believe is salvation itself, that we are dead in our sins. And not that we are dead in our sins, we are unwilling to go to God. When you became a Christian, it's not that one day it made sense to you. It's one day by the power of the Spirit, God made you alive to hear truth and give you the power to respond. He called you. You might have walked down an aisle, you might have said a prayer, you might have taken some action, but before you did anything, God called you. He is the author and initiator of salvation. And that is good news, y'all. That's good news. One, that's good news for us personally because it, it says that I didn't get it right. It should humble me 
I'm a Christian not because I'm better than anyone else, but but that God called me. It should humble us. But it also means that when we're sharing the faith, there's only so much we can mess up, y'all. When we go to share the gospel, it's not our winsome arguments that makes people turn from their sins and trust in Jesus. It is God calling them. So if you know somebody who doesn't know the Lord Jesus Christ and you find yourself stumped with the questions that they ask, stumped with how to have a conversation about the gospel, do you realize that the most important thing you can do for them is to pray for them? Your winsome arguments are good and helpful. The Bible says that we should be ready to give a defense, apologia, apologetics of our faith, but that's not what saves people. Convincing arguments isn't what saves people. God calling them saves. And so if you want to see someone come to know him, yes, read some books. Yes, have hard conversations. But more importantly than anything, pray that God would call them to repentance. The called. We are also loved by God the Father. We are called by him, not just as servants, although that would be better than we deserve. We're not called just as hirelings, as workers. We are loved. Now, this is profound because once you realize how broken you really are, how much sin is rampant in my own heart, the fact that God looks down on me and says, I love him. These are profound and comforting truths that we are loved by God, not because of us, but despite of us. And lastly, it says that we are kept for Jesus Christ. Just as I believe that we don't come to faith by making a cognitive decision first, that we are called by God first. So if God saves us, you are saved to the uttermost. If God is the one who saves us, then we are kept by the same power that we are adopted into the family by. And so it means that you are safe. It means that if you are really called by God, then you are really loved by God and you are really safe in God's arms. David didn't stop being a man after God's own heart in his moment of sin and brokenness and weakness. And we don't stop being kept by God when we stumble, fall, and fail time and time again. Y'all, we're not even past the first verse. Y'all see why these things are worth spending some time on. We are called by God. We are loved by God, and we are kept by God for Jesus Christ. That for means we are preserved not just for our own sake or for our own comfort, but we are kept for him. We live for Jesus. We worship Jesus. We submit to Jesus. All of this points to the glory of the risen Christ. And that is how Jude begins this letter on contending for the faith. Let me just pause right second and say this right here. We're going to see this time and time again, but whatever you think defending the faith means, whatever you think contending for the faith means, maybe what you think it means is going to be challenged by the book of Jude. If we were writing a wartime manual on how to defend the faith, I might not have started it this way, but how you are loved and called and kept with a position of servanthood rather than appealing to my position and proximity to Jesus as Jude did. So maybe what we think about fighting for the faith and defending the faith isn't actually biblical. Let's see. To those who are the called, loved by God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ, a one-sentence prayer that we, we should put on our refrigerators and pray for our families and others, it says, may pe- mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. 
May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. He is praying. I'm, he's about to get into the contention. He's about to get into the commands to contend for the faith. But his prayer for us, the readers of his epistle, is that mercy, peace, and love will be multiplied to you. We're going to get back to this, but already we should be reorienting what we think defending the faith means because it means the end result of our contending for the faith, according to the Bible, is more mercy, more peace, and more love. If that is not the fruit of our contending, we might just be fighting rather than defending the faith and contending as the Bible calls us to. He's laying down a foundation of the fruit of our contention should be more mercy, more peace, and more love to be multiplied. Now, verses 3 and 4, what most theologians and commentators would say is the thesis statement for the book. But before we get there, I want to introduce a term that's going to help us understand this thesis statement. There's a word called an inclusio. Say it with me. Inclusio. Share it with your friends and press them. Say, that's what I learned in church today. An inclusio is a literary device that, that bookends some information. It's basically like a sandwich. It says the authors of the Bible oftentimes use this where they state something up front. They state it again at the end, and everything in the middle of that story is to be interpreted and understood by the truths on opposite ends. We do this in business circles all the time. You ever heard of the compliment sandwich? Right? I'm going to say something nice to you, then I'm going to jab you, and then I'm going to say something nice again, Right? The reason you do that is because the compliments are, should shape and understand our critique. So the critique should be understood in the, in the theme or in the heart of the compliments. You did a great job today. Maybe try doing this differently, but thank you so much for helping. Right? Y'all can use that later. There you go. Compliment sandwich. The critique in the middle is to be understood by the love shared on the other ends. That's an inclusio. And you see this all the time in the Bible because the Bible is full of lots of stories, and stories can be interpreted our own ways. And so a lot of times, the authors of Scripture would give us a story, but they would tell us what they want to get out of the story by doing an inclusio, by using bookends. And the book of Jude, I would submit, is one long inclusio. It's one long passage that's bookended with truths that helps us understand the middle. Let me prove it to you. We started with verses 1 and 2, talking about mercy, peace, and love. Let's, hear, let's see if you hear something similar towards the end. Let's start at verse 21, the last few verses of the book. It says, Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting expectantly for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ for eternal life. Have mercy on those who waver. Save others by snatching them from the fire. Have mercy on others, but with fear, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. Now to him who is able to protect you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory without blemish and with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory and majesty, power and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen. Not only is that profound truth that I promise you we're going to spend much time on in a few weeks, but don't you hear the similarities between the way the book started and the way the book ends? Didn't you hear words like love and mercy and peace? Didn't you hear words about the authority and lordship of Jesus? You see, the whole of the book of Jude is interpreted by these two bookends, the themes of love, 
mercy, and the lordship of Jesus is how we're going to understand this whole book. So whatever you think about fighting for the faith means, whatever you think contending for the faith means, we are going to read and interpret the book of Jude through this book-ending theme of love, mercy, and the lordship of Jesus so that mercy, peace, and love will be multiplied as a result of our contending. Now, let's get to verses 3 and 4, the kind of thesis statement for the book. Dear friends, although I was eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I found it necessary appealing to you to contend for the faith that was delivered to the saints once for all. Let me pause here for a moment. Here's the command to contend for the faith. Now, we can draw at least three things from, these, from this one verse. One is that there is a faith that we should contend for. It is a faith worth contending for. And the aim of our contention should be about the gospel and within the church. Stay with me on that last one. The aim of our contention should be about the gospel and within the church. Let's look at the first one, that there is a faith to contend for. It says that they contend for the faith that was what? Delivered to the saints once and for all. Delivered to the saints once and for all. What is that saying? It's saying that God has revealed himself clearly through the word of God, and he's finished doing it. And the word was delivered, not conjured, not created, not written. It was delivered from the apostles and prophets to the people of God in the infallible, inerrant, inspired scriptures. I remember when I was in middle school a long time ago, um, we used to use things called trapper keepers, right? The three-ring binders. Um, we call them trapper keepers, right? That's a real thing? Amen. So trapper keepers is what we called them. They're three-ring binders. Um, we, handled, we had those at the first, you know, first day of class. You did the half-inch one, the inch one, the three-inch one. You had all these regulations for sizes. But the reason we used the three-ring binders is because we were going to be putting things in them throughout the year. So at the beginning of the year, they started kind of light and empty. But towards the end of the year, you kept adding and adding and tabs and folders and pages. At the end of the year, you had this big binder that you ended up just throwing away. So praise God. It's good use of time. Um, But that's that's what the purpose of three ring binders are. Now, you'll notice that when you walk into a bookstore, if people walk into bookstores anymore, that you don't buy three ring binder Bibles. There's no Bible that is bound in a trapper keeper. Why? because you're not going to add anything else to it. We're done. God has spoken. It was delivered, and it was once and for all. Genesis 1 began with God said. Revelation 22 ends with a warning against taking away or adding to anything that God has said. And so the Word of God is closed. But there are some who always feel like it is insufficient, and others like Joseph Smith and others have added to the Bible, said the Bible is incomplete. There's another part of the story. And we are called to reject that. There is a faith that is objective, that is outside of our experiences, outside of our belief. There is a, an objective faith that is delivered once and for all. The second thing that we can draw from this is this faith is worth fighting over. Did you hear what Jude said in verse 2? I'm sorry, verse 3. He said that he wanted to write about something else. He wanted to write about the salvation that we all share. But I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith. This is not optional to contend for the faith. As a matter of fact, it was of such importance and urgency that it changed Jews' mission and intention with writing this letter. 
I wanted to write about you to you about the salvation that we share. I wanted to write to you about the things that held us together and what we had in common. But now I've got to write about what makes us different. Now I've got to write about how we are not all the same, how we don't all believe the same things. And he found it necessary to write for this, to contend for the faith. Contending for the faith is large in Christian history. All of the 12 apostles, former disciples except for one, were martyred or crucified and killed for their faith because they would not reject Jesus. Now, hear clearly why they were killed. They weren't killed for doing something wrong. They were killed for believing something that the world said was wrong. If all they had to do was renounce Jesus and they would live, all they had to do was proclaim the godship of the Roman emperor and Caesar, and they would have lived. But yet, the very notion of saying that Jesus Christ isn't Lord, the very notion that saying someone else is God except for Jesus was worth laying down their lives for. So there is a faith worth fighting for. Now, the last thing we can draw from this, I said, is that the contention is for the gospel within the church. Let me read verse 4 to make that plainer. It says, For some people who were designated for this judgment long ago have come in by stealth. Have come what? In by stealth. They are ungodly, turning the grace of our God into sensuality and denying Jesus Christ as our only master and Lord. The last thing as, as Jude is laying down his foundation is what they were fighting about and who they were contending with. What are we contending and fighting about and who are we contending with? Let's start with the what. They are denying Jesus Christ as our only master and Lord and turning the grace of our God into sensuality. What does that mean? There are two opposite and extreme ends of reaction to the laws of God. There is legalism and licentiousness. Legalism and licentiousness. Sensuality here is referring to licentiousness. Let me explain it. Legalism is God loves me if I keep the law. God accepts me by obeying the rules. That's what legalism is. And that's what the whole book of Galatians that we just walked through is countering and saying, no, we are saved by grace through faith by Christ alone. That is why we are saved. We're not saved by the keeping of the law. But the opposite reaction to legalism is licentiousness. Licentiousness says that the commands of God don't matter. As a matter of fact, the more you sin, the more grace you experience. Where sin abounds, grace abounds even more. That's what licentiousness is. Legalism says it is by the commands of God that we are saved and justified. The opposite a reaction to that is the commands of God don't matter. If we're saved by faith, then I can live however I want to live. God will forgive me. The commands of God don't matter at all. And he's saying that there are some who have snuck in that are turning God's grace into sensuality. Because here's the effect of grace. Here's the effect of grace. It has a counterintuitive effect on our souls if we are born again. When God says, I love you unconditionally because of what Jesus Christ did for me, it doesn't provoke us running out the front door. It provokes us making ourselves at home in his word and in his law. 
And honestly, that's how human relationships work, don't it? That's why the marriage covenant is so important. That's why just living together isn't the same thing. Because when you say, I do for better or for worse, when you say, I will love you no matter what you do, only then can love flourish. Only when you say yes before you know what you're getting into does love flourish. Only when people feel safe that you don't have one foot out the door, that one day they're going to find out something about themselves or you're going to find out something about them that you don't like and you're going to leave only when people feel truly and unconditionally loved, do we actually grow and does love actually flourish? And that is what grace does on the inside of us. God says, I love you unconditionally because I didn't call you because of you were good enough. I saved you because of what Jesus Christ did for you. But in that environment, the spirit inside of us does something supernatural that makes the commands of God seem good to us. That makes the commands of God seem right to us. And I would say it's a fair assumption that if that's not true in your heart, have you experienced the love of God? There are rules. I'm I'm married to a very gracious and patient woman. And because I know she loves me unconditionally, it doesn't provoke the abuse of that. Well, Jeannie's going to forgive me no matter what I do. I might as well do what I want to do. Anybody who heard me talk that way would rightfully question my love for her. But oftentimes in Christian circles, it's the same thing. Anyone who responds to the grace of God by saying the commands don't matter, we would have a right to question, do you love God at all? And so there are some who believe that licentiousness or sensuality is the proper understanding of grace. And so what we're fighting against is this distortion of the doctrines of grace itself and the lordship of Jesus. What's the second thing that they deny? That Jesus Christ is our only master and Lord. They're not fighting about secondary issues here. They're not talking about the color of the carpet or the songs that we're singing. They're talking about the very core of Christianity itself. What does grace mean and who is Jesus? You get those wrong no matter what it looks like on the outside, you are not saved. You get those right, and we can disagree on what it looks like on the outside, but we'll disagree as brothers. So what are we contending about is this idea of the doctrines of grace itself, the gospel, who Jesus is, what he did, and how we should live in response. But who are we contending with? Well, verse 4 says that some people have snuck in by stealth. You see, the aim of our contending, Christian, the aim of our fighting is not the world out there. It's us in here. You see, the world can't destroy Christianity. Jesus was clear on that point. The gates of hell will not prevail against his church. It may prevail against your church. Churches close down all the time. But God's church will prevail. His work will continue with or without us. So the greatest threat to Christianity isn't what's happening in the world. It isn't what's happening around us. It isn't what's happening in the political sphere. It's what's happening within the walls by those who call themselves Christian. We've all experienced that moment, right? Where you're talking with an unbelieving friend 
and you're starting to share the gospel, and you're having a, a heartfelt conversation, you're, you're getting past the surface issues, and you're really starting to talk about the meat of the matter. And it's almost like letting the air out of a tire when they bring up something that another Christian said, something crazy that another Christian did, or the experience that they had at a church growing up. And now you've got to defend Christianity itself from other Christians. We've all experienced the hurt and harm that those claiming the name of the Lord can do for the church. And so the aim of our contention isn't the world, isn't the outsider, it's the insider. They have snuck in. That's what we see in Acts chapter 20. That's what we see in 2 Peter. Over and over and over, the command is clean your house first. The prophet Isaiah, the prophet Jeremiah, the prophet Ezekiel, they all started with a condemnation towards Israel and the shepherds first. And so this should be a heart check for us. Where is the aim of our contending? Are we holding our brothers and sisters accountable, or are we just lobbing rocks across our theological fence, our tribal fence, our political fence? Are we just throwing all the rocks and lobbing all the, the volleys of arrows over there, or are we holding our own tribes accountable, whatever that tribe may be? And here's why this is important. There is lots of tension in, in our country, in our churches right now. From people who believe that Jesus Christ is Lord, people who believe the Bible are fighting. And the Bible says it's, it's, we're not called to be pacifists when it comes to the doctrines of grace, but we are called to be peaceful and peaceable. You see, in Matthew chapter 5, there's a verse, um, Jesus is giving the Sermon on the Mount. And he says a line that says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will inherit the earth. Notice what that verse didn't say. It didn't say, blessed are the pacifists. Blessed are the peaceful. It said, blessed are the peacemakers. There is a place for contending, because only through contention sometimes do we accomplish peace. We must make peace. And that calls for hard work. There's a man by the name of Patrick Lencioni who wrote a book called The Five Dysfunctions of a Team. And he listed some of those, lack of accountability, lack of trust, but the one that I think we struggle with the most is the, the one dysfunction of a team that says a fear of conflict. There are some of us who have a fear of conflict. And even the business world says that that produces unhealthy culture because issues aren't addressed. Conflict only increases when we don't address it. And so the book of Jude and the Bible tells us there is a right way to contend. As a matter of fact, we must contend. We must make peace by fighting for the right things. But how should we be fighting? And who should we be fighting against? Those are the questions that the book of Jude seeks to answer. And the foundation, before we get into the specifics towards the end of the chapter, the foundation is this, that we fight and contend for the gospel. And the aim of our contention is not those out there, but us. So what does that look like practically? A lot of the conversations that we see in our world today, and I'm, I'm wrapping up here, a lot of the conversations that we see today, we confuse doctrine with application. We confuse doctrine, what God has said, with application. How do I live that out? So there are parents who will send their children to public schools and private schools, both appealing to Scripture. 
There will be people who get married and stay single, both appealing to Scripture. There are people who go to Christian colleges and universities or non-Christian colleges and universities, both appealing to Scripture. And there's room for that because God didn't say, send your child to a private school. God said, train up a child when he is young so that when he is old, he won't depart from it. And parents will apply that truth in different ways, and that's okay. Most of our contention is around the application of God's Word, not God's Word exactly. Let me make it help. Let me make it real plain for y'all. You cannot find a verse in the Bible that says vote for a Democrat candidate or a Republican candidate. You can't do it. Now, you can see principles of justice, mercy, and life and draw your own application and conclusions from them. But that means we must have charity and compassion with those who draw different conclusions. Now, let me be clear. There are some conclusions which God does not leave us to draw ourselves. The care for the orphan, the widow, the prisoner, the oppressed, like those are non-negotiable. But how we do that in a democracy, how we do that as a, as a CEO, how you do that as a stay-at-home parent, how you do that as a student, that's contextual. And we're going to all do those things differently. We're going to all apply the Word of God differently in our different contexts with our different sphere of influence, and that is okay. Man, let me just throw this out there. If Christians recently would share the gospel as much as they've been sharing their favorite political memes, we'd be doing okay. We, we'd be doing okay. I've seen Christians more engaged about our political moment than just sharing the gospel. Like, people who've been otherwise silent on social media now have something to say every single day, and it's not about Jesus. It's about their party their beliefs, their preferences, their news intake. We're contending about application. We're contending about secondary issues, calling it defending the faith when that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says defend Jesus Christ as Lord and grace itself. We're straight on those, and we can disagree on what that looks like in our lives. If we're honest, most of us are just defending our positions rather than defending our faith. We're defending our judgments and our applications, not defending our faith. One, because we're defending it with those who are not part of the house of God. And two, we're not talking about God at all. We're just talking about our policy positions or our favorite topics. And that is not what it means to contend for the faith. The book of Jude is going to tell us how we should do this. But let me give you a spoiler alert. Contending for the faith is more about you living godly than you having the right answer. Contending for the faith is going to be more about you living a godly life and showing mercy and love to others than it is about you having the right thing to say at the right time to shut down the person you're talking to. Once again, the inclusio, the bookends of the book, the contending of our faith, if it doesn't produce more mercy, if it doesn't produce more love, if it doesn't produce more peace, then we're actually not contending, we're just fighting. We're being quarrelsome, the Bible calls us. And so as we walk through the book of Jude, we're going to see what it means to actually get into good trouble. Not just on civic issues, but gospel issues. What does it mean to actually contend for the faith in a way that produces more love, more mercy, more peace? We do have a faith worth fighting for, church. 
but how we're fighting and what we're fighting over, I believe the Word of God is going to challenge us on as we walk through the series in the next few weeks. Would you pray with me now? Father God, and I pray that right now you'd begin stirring our hearts, God. I pray right now, God, you've been convicting me, Father, that you'd begin to show me areas of my life where I have not been contending for the faith. I've just been defending my position. God, would you help us understand what is of first importance and what things we can agree to disagree on and still be brothers and sisters? And God, would more mercy, peace, and love be multiplied today by the hearing, listening, and obeying of your word. In the precious name of Jesus Christ, amen and amen. Let's end with worship together.